You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. I don't know uh, where you were October 14th, uh, 2023, uh, but my family was outside uh, with big dumb goggles on, staring up into the heavens. Uh, One of them was uh, wearing a welder's mask, just looking up uh, into the sky like weirdos. Uh, Because on October 14th, 2023, uh, there was an annular eclipse. You guys remember that? Annular eclipse. Anybody went outside to look at that thing? Burn your retinas? Anybody? Uh, It was uh, an amazing thing. So an annular, uh, annular eclipse, for those of you who don't know, is an eclipse where the moon comes in front of the sun. There's the, the solar eclipse part of it. Uh, but it doesn't cover the entirety of the sun. It's, it's a little bit smaller than it, so it makes this, uh, uh, this ring of fire thing. If you can see it with those big dumb glasses, you could see a ring of fire there. And it's amazing. And depending on where you are on Earth, uh, you get to see the whole thing or maybe a partial uh, bit of thing. We could see some of it here in Dallas. Most of my family lives in San Antonio, so they saw the whole kit and caboodle. It was, it was amazing. Uh, my family's freaking out. Everybody's outside. The neighbors are running out. Some guy actually did bring a welder's helmet. And they're just putting it on, looking like the Iron Man staring up. It was, it was amazing. Uh, y- y- you can see like on the ground, like all the crescent moon shapes everywhere when you look down. Now, I wasn't with them. I was uh, being a dutiful father at my son's basketball game. Uh, but in between, um, almost said innings, uh, in between <laughs> quarters, you see that? Sports. It's real. Hashtag sports. Uh, I would run outside. And I'd go look, and I'd run back in. And you know, it's, it's crazy looking. Everything's kind of like gray and weird. And, and I'm just freaking out. There's a group text. My dad's sending pictures. It was this whole thing. It was amazing. Uh, and uh, the one time when I go outside, I'm looking up. I'm looking, and I look over here, and there's a guy sitting there just on his phone, like scrolling TikTok. And, uh, and I've got to share my joy. I've got the, the, the joy of the world. It's my strength. I don't know. It's, it's, it's happening inside me. This thing's happening. And so I look at him and I, and, I, and I get his attention. I'm like, hey, buddy. He's like, yeah. I'm like, it's a, it's a solar eclipse. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget. He, he looks up at me. He looks at the sky. He just goes, mm. and he just goes back to scrolling. I'm like, you are what's wrong with America, son. Stop it. Put down your phone. Stop looking at cat videos because this thing only happens once every 12 years in a way that you could see it in any meaningful way. This is, I'm just, I'm baffled at this moment how different our reactions were. Now, why were we reacting so differently? Well, the answer is really simple. I had information about this event that he lacked, right? I knew things about, I knew that the last time this happened was May 2012 when I had one kid. Now I have 15 kids. This is not a, a common thing that happens where you can see this thing. I knew that this was a precious moment to savor and to enjoy. I knew how rare all this was. He didn't know any of that. He, he, he lacked the necessary knowledge. And because he lacked that kind of knowledge, he had no anticipation, no hope, no excitement, no eagerness for waiting for anything. He wasn't waiting for anything because he lacked the proper knowledge. Now, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you this because Christmas is coming. Kids, 
Christmas is coming and we are kicking off uh, a new series to celebrate uh, that day, uh, Christmas, uh, with a series called Advent. And the, the Christian church has really been doing this for almost 2,000 years. We've been celebrating the season leading up to the birth of Jesus. If you're new to this sort of Christianity thing and the word Advent scares you, let me just define it for you real briefly. The word Advent comes from a Latin word which just means coming or arrival. It's actually where we get our word adventure from, right? That there is something about to happen and I'm anticipating, I'm going on an adventure. That's what Advent is. And during the season of Advent, uh, we Christians, we come together and we do a couple things. Uh, the first thing we do is we look backward. We look back and we remember the coming of Jesus into the world 2,000 years ago at Christmas. That's the, the first thing we're doing at Advent when we gather. But we're also doing something else. We're also looking forward as we wait for the rest of what God has promised. That one day Jesus is coming back for us. This is what he told his disciples in John uh, 14. I will come again and I will take you to myself and where I am you may be also. So Advent is all about two things. It's about looking back to the one who came and then looking forward to the one who's coming. Now there is a word for this type of looking forward, this sort of expectant anticipation. There's a word for that that we use and that word is hope. Right? And every Advent season typically begins with a meditation on this idea of hope. Now, when I use the word hope, I don't mean it like our culture means it. I hope that I fit into my pants after Thanksgiving is not uh, hope. It's wishing. And if you didn't get fourths, you probably could. So stop eating so much. Um, but that's not, that's not what we mean, what Christians mean when we talk about hope. Biblical hope is something altogether different. Biblical hope is a, it's a future expectation grounded in God's promise that he's going to make things right. I'm going to say that one more time for you. Biblical hope is, is a future expectation that's grounded in God's promise that one day he's going to make things right. So it's looking forward, trusting in something that, that he has said about the future. It's the knowledge that uh, though something is broken, though something is wrong, someone's coming to fix it. Uh, last month, I was walking around my house and I saw a hole uh, going under my house uh, near my bedroom. And it was shaped about the size of a skunk because it was a skunk hole. And uh, I have my pest guy basically on speed dial because I live next to a forest. And I told him, hey, would you come and slaughter a skunk for me? And he said, yes, I'll bring a camera, bring the travel, do the whole thing. I actually don't think it's legal to, to slaughter a skunk, but uh, that's what I wanted from him. He promised to, to come and take care of it, but uh, the guy couldn't come for like three days. And you'd think I'd be miserable, but actually I wasn't. I, was, uh, I survived it. I even thrived through it because I knew one day the man I called was coming, right? Someday that skunk was going to meet his maker. Uh, now, th this is what I mean by hope. There's a certain knowledge that we have to have that inspires us to live vibrant, buoyant lives until we meet that, that expectation of hope, the, the one who's coming to fix it. And if you have that knowledge, you'll have hope. But if you don't have that knowledge, it turns out you don't have hope. You will be, what we say, hope. Less. You'll be like that guy sitting outside scrolling cat videos on his phone while something amazing is happening around you. And I don't want that for us. We don't want that for, for our church. And so we're in this season of Advent, in this series of Advent, because we are convinced something amazing actually has happened. Yeah? That, that 20 centuries ago, a teenage girl 
gives birth to a baby named Jesus in the back of a barn. Now that is not a headline if you lack all the necessary knowledge. And yet, the world around him at that time starts going crazy, right? Everything, the angels start showing up in the sky, singing Christmas carols, and the stars start moving around, and kings get all upset, want to kill us. And shepherds are showing up, and wise men are traveling hundreds of miles to worship a baby, and you're going, what's going on? What is all the hubbub about? What is so amazing? What are they waiting for? That's the question we're asking this morning as we start our Advent series, as we're thinking about hope. What is the thing that they're waiting for? What is the hope of Christmas? That's what we're looking at today. What is the hope of Christmas? We're going to consider three aspects of it this morning. We're going to consider the promises of hope, the irony of hope, and the foolishness of hope. So that's sort of our movement today. And to get us down the road, to get a picture of this, we're going to get some help from an elderly gentleman named Simeon. Yeah, so if you have your Bible, get it out, uh, because we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We're actually going to be all over our Bible today, so get ready to do some flipping. Okay, get a pen maybe, this will, this will uh, help you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to start us in verse 25 today. It says this, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. So here is our introduction to this man, Simeon. He doesn't get a lot of airtime in the Bible. It's kind of the only time he shows up, and we only know a few things about him. We know that he was righteous, that he was devout, he was a God-fearer. We know that, uh, but most importantly, Luke wants us to know something about his activity. The thing Simeon is known for in the Bible is waiting. Which isn't very exciting. Uh, it, it's waiting. But, but do you see, that it's, we're getting to that hope theme with Simeon. Simeon was waiting. He was a man who was, quote, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That he spent his whole life looking for something. And that something was called the consolation of Israel. Now, that word consolation could be translated encouragement. It could be translated comfort, uh, but the idea here uh, is that something was meant to happen that was meant to console and help and comfort and reassure and bring ease to the people of Israel. Now, this is a very important phrase, actually, in our Bible because it's, it's meant to actually bring our minds all the way back, way before Luke, way before Matthew and Mark, all the way into our Old Testament— 700 years before the birth of Jesus uh, to a man named Isaiah who wrote some prophecies uh, to the people of Judah in the Old Testament. And in Isaiah chapter 40, he says some similar words to this people of God who were about to be captured by the Babylonians, oppressed by them uh, because of their sin. All of that was going down. And in Isaiah, I, uh, God makes some promises to his people. Listen to his words in verses 1 and 2. He says this. Listen to how familiar this sounds. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And, he, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So Luke is cluing us into something by borrowing some of the language of Isaiah. He's cluing us into to what Simeon was actually waiting for. God had made promises to his people to relieve him. That he's bringing comfort to them to end their warfare, to pardon their sin. But what's interesting is the way Luke talks about this consolation of Israel. It's not a what to Luke, it's a who. The, the consolation of Israel is not coming through a pronouncement, it's coming through a person. Look at verse 26 in Luke. It says this, And it had been revealed to him, to Simeon, 
by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So God makes a promise through the Holy Spirit to Simeon. He says, before you die, you're actually going to meet this consolation. But this consolation has a face, has a name. This is the Lord's Christ you're going to meet. Now, what does that mean to us? We're getting all these terms today, Advent and Christ. And what, what, is, what does this mean? To, well, it means a whole heck of a lot if you're a Jew. That, that idea of Christ is pregnant with all sorts of meaning. The word Christ um, is the Greek word, which is trying to capture the essence of a Hebrew word, Mashiach, which is where we get our word Messiah from. And that word means the anointed one. So th- when you think Christ... You think Messiah, anointed one, all the same idea. What is an anointed one? Well, well, an anointed one would have been somebody who is selected by God, appointed by God to serve God in some special particular way. Uh, and typically that, that person was selected uh, using uh, anointing oil, like poured on the head or on the forehead. So this is the way in the Old Testament that you would designate a high priest. You would pour oil on their head. Or the way you would designate a king is is oil would be poured on their head. Remember Samuel pouring the oil on David's head? This is the way you designated an important particular person that God had selected to do a thing for the Lord. An anointed one. An anointed one was a someone in the Bible. It was a hero in the Bible. All throughout your Old Testament, we get these promises of this someone, this hero who's coming to make all things right. And, and as you read through your Old Testament, you get these markers, these sort of hope anchors along the way that someone is coming, a someone is coming to fix what's broken. So what I want to do for a few moments with you is just take a little tour of the Old Testament with you to orient you to, to what almost every Jew would have a sense of, of there is my anchor of, of a promise that God's made that he's going to fix what's broken. I'm going to th- this truth, this promise of God. Let me take you through some of them so we can kind of get our bearings for, for why Simeon would spend his whole life waiting for this thing called the consolation of Israel, which means nothing to us. What, what, why does it matter so much to him? Let's, let's go take a tour of the Old Testament. Now, before we do, let me just say one quick side note. Uh, this is my quick sales pitch uh, that you should read the Old Testament, okay? Um, turns out uh, there's more books than just the back third of your Bible. There's, there's a lot there. And if you are the type of person that only reads the last 27 books of the 66 book, book uh, you, uh, you're, it's like you're watching a a black and white movie uh, with no words in the 1920s. It's just, it's something, but it's not the whole thing. But when you, when you open up the rest of this book we call the Bible, and you can start seeing how promises fulfilled in the New Testament were actually made in the Old Testament, that there was anticipation growing and growing over centuries and centuries that, that had their payoff in the arrival of Jesus. All of a sudden, we're not just seeing things in black and white. This is it. We are in technicolor now. This is, this is VR goggles. This, it's this thing happening. That's what the Old Testament is meant to do for our understanding of everything else that happens in the New Testament. So there's my soapbox. I'm getting off it, but just go read your Bibles. Okay. Uh, let's take a quick tour. Um, here's, here's maybe um, hope anchor point one. It happens all the way in the book of Genesis, chapter three. Uh, we've been over it uh, a couple years ago. A crucial moment in our Bible. Uh, God 
made the world. He made Adam and Eve. They're with God uh, in the place God made for them. There's shalom. There's relationship. And then Adam and Eve sin against God. They put themselves on the throne. They take him off. They say, us, not you. And the earth cracks. God sees this. He moves in toward them. And he begins to pronounce curses over the wickedness that has been performed in his sight. And he curses the ground. And he curses the relationships between men and women. Things are getting cursed. But in the middle of all of that, in Genesis chapter 3, God makes a very interesting statement as he's speaking to the serpent himself, the, the, the enemy of God's people, Satan himself. He says this in verse 15. Listen to these words. Here's our first little anchor point of hope in our Old Testament. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's he saying? Sin has cracked the world. But I want to let you know something. At the very beginning of this whole story, I'm raising up the offspring of a woman. And it's a he. And he shall bruise your head. There is a snake crusher coming. There is a curse reverser coming. And he's going to deal with this broken world. Isn't it beautiful that from, that from some of the very first words in our Bible, we get this shining beacon of hope that though something's broken, someone's coming to fix it. Hope starts in the very first book of your Bible. There is a curse reverser coming. Now fast forward a couple thousand years now it's not just Adam and Eve. It's a nation of people under God's law. They were oppressed and enslaved in Egypt. And God raises up a prophet named Moses to liberate them from their enslavement. It's the whole Red Sea crossing. It's the 10 plagues. It brings them into the wilderness of Sinai. Uh, on their way for 40 years through the desert to a place that God had promised them. The land of Canaan. And they're on the cusp of getting into the land of Canaan. Uh, uh, this man named Moses is an old man now at this point. And he writes a book called Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, he's giving his last words to the nation before he expires on the other side of the promised land. What are the last things he wants them to know before he dies and they move into the land of Canaan? If you don't know this verse, you need to go to it in your Bible and circle it because it is a crucial moment in the history of the Jews. This is a anchor moment of hope for all of God's people for centuries. Deuteronomy 18, 15. On the cusp of dying, on the cusp of the promised land, Moses, the great prophet, looks at God's people and he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. He said, there's a someone coming after me. I'm expiring here, but God is raising up another prophet, a capital P prophet like me, who's going to do for you, what I did for you, which is to bring you the very words of God. He's going to speak God's very words to you. You want to hear from God? Then you wait for the capital P prophet to come. And this was a hope. This was an, just a, a anchor point of hope for the Jewish people for thousands of years. Here's one way we know it. Because when you get to the Gospels, and Jesus starts asking his disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? Do you remember one of the things that they say back to him? Some say, you're the prophet. You remember when they said that? What are they talking about? The prophet. They're talking about Deuteronomy 18. That there was an expectation that someone was coming who was going to, to bring the words of God back to the people of God. 
Someone in the very spirit of Moses to come. There was someone coming, a prophet like Moses, who was going to fix things. Something's broken, but someone's coming to fix it. Now let's fast forward another 400 years. Now we got a king on the throne, King David. He's ruling and reigning over the people of Israel. And he's bringing his enemies and subjection under this nation's feet. And as things start calming down, as peace starts to be achieved under his reign, he looks at God and he says, okay, now it's about time that I get going on this project I wanted to do for you. I'm going to build you a house. Do you remember this part in 2 Samuel? God, I'm going to build you a house. You remember what God says back to him? Nah, bro. Uh, I I don't know if you know this, but I don't need a house. I'm going to be okay, right? I own the cattle on a thousand hills. But let me tell you what I'm going to do for you, David. He looks at David and he says, instead of you building me a house, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to build you a house. And by house, he means dynasty. I'm going to build you an everlasting house, an everlasting dynasty that someone from your throne is going to sit there forever ruling and reigning. He says this in 2 Samuel 7, 16. Mark this in your Bible. It is so important. Your house, here's God's promise to David, and your kingdom, David, shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. There's a someone coming. There's a someone coming. It's a king, David. He's coming from your bloodline, and he will forever sit on your throne, and he will forever lead my people. The people of Israel We're waiting for that someone, a prophet like Moses, a king like David, that someone was coming to fix what was broken. Now, I don't know if you're um, overwhelmed or underwhelmed by this point, but let me give you one more promise because... If, if you're paying attention at all this morning, you probably realize these promises aren't exactly uh, thrilling if you are not a Jew. Um, and uh, my guess is 95, 98% of the room is uh, probably uh, not Jewish. I know we have some Jewish folks here with us. Praise God. Glad you're here. The rest of us, we got that Gentile blood. Okay? And so uh, it means a little bit less to a person like you and me uh, if the Jewish people get a king or the Jewish people get a prophet. Right? Because I'm sort of on the outside of this story. It, I, I need you to appreciate something with me for a moment. Um, we, uh, we've been in this Christian thing, many of us, for just our whole life. We just, this is just the air we breathe. Some of us Gentiles, we, we forget we shouldn't be on this team, guys. I, I, I just as clear as I can, you and I, most of us in this room, should not be here. God was, if you've read your Old Testament, God was doing a particular thing with a particular slice of people. And if you aren't a Jew, it ain't you. Do you understand? Like this is not, these things are not for you. Here's how, here's the situation for us Gentiles in the room. So, so lend me your ear and listen to what Paul says about the plight of the Gentile population on earth before Christ came. These are Paul's words, not mine. It says this in Ephesians 2, verse 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles of the flesh called uncircumcision, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Not good. Not good. Bad. Please don't miss this. Fellow Gentiles, we shouldn't be here. You shouldn't be here. 
This is not for you. It doesn't really matter that they got a king over there and a prophet over there. If I'm not, if I'm on the outside of this thing. But what I love about the book of Luke is it's really the only gospel that's intentionally penned with Gentiles like you and I in mind. All the other gospels uh, have a Um, an audience not as narrowly focused as Luke. Luke is thinking about the Gentile community and Luke wants us to know something about the hope of Christmas that I'm so thankful for. He wants us to know that it actually is not, in the end, only a Jewish hope. It is a hope for the whole world. Listen to verse 27. We're back in uh, Luke now. And he came in the spear, this is Simeon, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him, Jesus, in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, look close at your Bible for a second. Most of your Bibles, those last words right around there are probably capitalized or there's a little letter by them. That's because this is a quote. Simeon is actually quoting the prophet Isaiah again. And I want you to listen to this mind-blowing quote 700 years prior to this moment in Luke. Listen to what God is saying to the Messiah in in Isaiah 49. Listen to what he tells his great capital S servant about what he is to be doing. Verse six, he says, this is God talking to the Messiah. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. Do you hear it? That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What is God saying? This is, this is amazing. He's saying, it's too small time for you to just save Israel, my servant. I am raising you up to save the whole world. It's not a big enough feat for you to just prioritize Jacob. I want you to prioritize the nations. Here's what that means for us. The Jews Messiah, by God's grace, is the Gentiles Messiah. What God had offered to the Jews, he is now offering to us, people like you and me, non-Jews. What is the hope for Christmas? The hope for Christmas is that my God sees the problems in this world, sees the problems around me, and he has sent someone to fix it. He sent a snake crusher who's going to reverse the curse that happened in Genesis 3. He's going to send a prophet like Moses who's going to give us the very words of God again so we can hear from our God again. He's going to send us a king like David who's going to rule over us with righteousness and benevolence, who's never going to be conquered. It's going to be mighty. He's going to send us a light of revelation that's going to shine out, not just to this one little slice of the pie called Israel, but to the whole earth. He's going to shine on all the nations of the earth. That's, that is what is coming, the Bible says. All of this, and to all of these anchors throughout the Old Testament, this is what's bubbling in the heart of Simeon. All of these verses, he's remembering Genesis 3. He's remembering 2 Samuel. He's remembering these promises in Deuteronomy. He's remembering all these, and it's building up 
over hundreds of years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, thousands of years. And then with Simeon, 60, 70, 80 years, his whole life looking, waiting, anticipating. When's God going to do it? When's God going to bring the strong man into the room to take care of these things? When's God going to fix it? And then all of a sudden, one day, he's in the temple and a mom and dad walk in to the room and they've got a baby in their arm and the Holy Spirit taps on Simeon's shoulder and looks at him and he says, that's our guy. Just, I, just, I don't know. I don't, what, what would you feel? What would it be like? It, what would you be thinking? What's running through your head as, you, as you're standing before the one? You just heard God say, the one that you have spent every waking moment of your life eager for. You've been reading the Torah. You've been seeing the promises. I'm saying that's the one. What are you thinking? What are you imagining? What's going through your heart? Would you be thinking about his future? That this little baby, one day he's going he's gonna to grow up? Would you be thinking about how mighty he would become? How awesome? How, would he be strong and epic like Samson? Would he, be, would he walk decked in gold like Solomon, which is full of wisdom and just all the bling and all the things? People would, would everywhere he goes, that people just bow down before him, just standing in awe of his greatness. Is he going to just waltz in, waltz in and, and uh, take the crown off of Caesar and put it on his head? Or is he going to kill him first and then put the crown on his head? This is the Messiah we're talking about. Like, you've got the nation of Israel oppressed by Rome. They're in a hard spot. 400 years of silence. They haven't heard from a prophet in forever. They, the temple is just, a, just a, a barely a glimmer of what it once was. All of this hopelessness. And then here he is. What is this great conquering Messiah going to be like? That's, that is, he's got to be, it's got to be better. He's got to be bringing something new and epic and mighty. Surely that's what you're thinking. And maybe you'd be right if the Holy Spirit stopped speaking at verse 32. But he keeps going. He has one last thing to say through Simeon. And it is something, honestly, nobody expected. What will this Messiah be like? This is the rest of Simeon's prophecy. Verse 34, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that's to be opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What, what on earth is going on? I mean, we just took a downer turn. Like, uh, this is not a victorious tone. If you've read any of the infant narratives in Luke or Matthew, they just keep moving up in energy and expectation and praise. There's celebration. There's choruses of angels in the heavenlies. It, none of the other Christmas stories sound like Simeon's words. Simeon is unique in that he's the first one introducing anything that looks dark or difficult about this arrival of this Messiah. Many Israelites, many Israelites are going to fall because of him. I thought he's coming to rescue the Israelites. Why are Israelites falling because of him? The Christ is going to be opposed. There's going to be opposition to the, to the one who's coming. Mary's going to have grief. It's going to be like a sword piercing through her chest. What? This is an odd thing to say. But after he says it, what we discover is actually that there is a great irony that hangs over the hope of Christmas. And it's this, that yes, salvation finally has come, but it is not coming 
through a conquering Christ. It is coming through a suffering servant. Interesting. This is, this is not what we were expecting. This is not what those anchor points gave us the sense of. This is hope that is flipped upside down on its head. And we know it's flipped upside down because we have the benefit of hindsight. We know the whole story. We know how this unfolds. The one who made the stars was, was born under the stars in the back of a barn surrounded by dirty animals. The one who's the real king of Israel eventually will be mocked with a crown of thorns, crammed on his skull, beaten with rods while soldiers shouted him, Hail King of the Jews. The one who is the true prophet, the one who has the very words of God for his people was silenced by the very people who said they loved his word the most. The one who was sent to reverse the curse of Genesis 3 became the curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Paul says, by becoming a curse for us. The one who we all thought would overthrow Rome, let Rome overthrow him. The one who was the light of the nations went dark by the hand of the nations. The one who came to give us life gave his life. Do you see how upside down this whole thing is? How bizarre it is. This, is n- this isn't what the anchors told me. This isn't, this is too ironic and it's backward and it's wrong sounding. And these are Simeon's last words that he leaves us with. And we don't hear from him again. Where does this leave us? The ones who are, we are banking, you're in this room because you're banking your whole life on this stuff. For, th- for, for generations, we've been banking our whole lives, our whole hopes on this thing. And it, it looks seemingly nothing like what we thought it would. Where does it leave us? Here's where it leaves us, with a whole lot of foolishness. Christmas is for fools. You want a quote for the day? You can take that one. Christmas is for fools. It really is. Our entire hope, you're telling me our entire hope, is built around a teenage girl's baby who grows up one day to die as a criminal. This is, this is what we're putting, this is why you're in the room. You're putting your hope in, in this. This was God's great rescue plan. Do you ever wonder why most of the Jewish community alive today does not trust in the Messiah? Do you ever wonder why that is? This is why. Because you told me a prophet was coming, the true prophet, and he died. You told me the king was coming, who's going to sit on David's throne forever. And then he got crucified. This is crazy. It's foolishness. It's a stumbling block to me. It doesn't make any sense. The Davidic king doesn't get crucified. He reigns. Yes, it is foolish. It is foolish and it's crazy and it's stupid unless, unless he didn't stay crucified. That's the only way this doesn't, th- this gets fixed. It, if he stayed crucified, they're right, we're wrong, we should all go home. Why are you here? But if he didn't stay dead, then this death of his wasn't foolishness at all. It was actually the greatest victory that has ever been achieved on the face of the earth. And the proof that Simeon wasn't wasting his hope all those 60, 70, 80 years, and the proof that you're not wasting your time right now listening to me or reading your Bible or teaching your kids about God's word or praying to God, the, the proof 
is the empty tomb. Christmas does not make sense without Easter. Easter Sunday makes Christmas morning make sense. The only reason that we can talk about Advent and hope, knowing that the story unfolded in the crazy way it did, is because Easter Sunday happened. The resurrection proves this was God's plan from the beginning. As upside down as it is, that he once came in weakness to pay for our sin, and one day in victory, he's coming again. That's what we're banking on. It's our anthem. That once, well, the thing that seemed crazy is actually sane. The, the thing that seemed weak is actually strong. The thing that was foolish is actually wise. Our hope is well-founded if Jesus rose from the dead, and he did. Our Savior rose from the grave. Where do we go from here? Two quick things and we're done. Here's one thing we have to say about this. Um, we need to be praying for the Jewish community. Uh, the gospel is salvation first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. And most of them don't love him. Are you pleading with your God to soften their hearts so they would come to him? What a great thing for you to do during this Advent season. Maybe as you're doing some uh, sort of Advent program with your family. Would you take time to pray for the Jewish community? That they, would, that they wouldn't miss the hope of the Messiah. He's their king. He's their prophet. And most of them reject him. Ask God to do something about it. Pray for the Jews. Pray for them. Last thing, don't lose hope. Don't, hopelessness, despair, it's a real thing. Uh, but, but don't lose hope. As unexpected as the fulfillment of Simeon's hope was, it was fulfilled by God. God did do it. He always does what he says he'll do, even if it doesn't look like what you thought it would. And he's promised that one day he's coming back. Again, not meek and lowly, but triumphant in victory to bring his people home, to do away with suffering, to restore this broken earth, to be with us forever. Those are the promises we have now that we are looking forward to in the future. And I don't know where you're at this morning if you're battling despair. This is a sermon about hope. And, and I guarantee you in a room this size, there's some hopeless people in here. If you're battling despair, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to take Christmas as God's proof that there really is a bright future ahead of you if you will hope in him. Christmas is proof of that. He did what he said he would do once and he's gonna do it again. Do you feel like there's no hope in your walk with your addiction and your broken marriage with your kids? Is, does it feel like there's no hope? Christmas proves there is. That it, it doesn't have to end in despair. Uh, Jack Nicholson has a scene in one of my favorite movies in the 90s. I love it where he comes out of the psychiatrist's office and he, uh, uh, and he walks into the waiting room of this, of this uh, psychiatric uh, space and there's these, uh, all these uh, patients sitting there. And before he walks out the door, he just looks at him and he goes, uh, what if this is as good as it gets? And you hear someone go, oh, <laughs> what a terrifying thought. It's, what if this is as good as it gets? What Christmas proves is it's not.
this is not as good as it gets. If this is as good as it gets, dang, that's rough. But it gets better. And he proved it by fulfilling everything he said he would do in the Old Testament. And he's going to prove it again when he returns. Keep your hope fixed on him. Fight despair by the one who has already proved it once. And he's going to prove it again one day. He once came in weakness to pay for our sin. And one day in victory, he's coming again. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I'm so thankful that hope is real. It isn't wishful thinking. It isn't me crossing my fingers and hoping for the best. It is confidence that the God who promised to do something is going to do it. And I've got a double confidence. This whole room has a double confidence now that you're going to do what you say you do because you've already done it once. So when you say you're going to return, we believe you, God. God, would you help us? Would you rescue us from the despair of this world? The weight of the world's crushing down. It feels like there's no out. It feels like there's going to be no bright future for us. God, would you remind us that there absolutely will if our hope is in the risen Savior. It might not look like we thought it would, but you will do it. And God, we celebrate you for it. We bless you for it. And we worship you for it now in Jesus' name. Amen.